appreciate the warm welcome. Super uncomfortable now, but that's okay. Um, but thank you. No, seriously, it's an honor and a privilege to be up here to share with you guys tonight. I think the Lord's going to speak, so I'm just going to jump right in, if that's okay with you. So uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, or it should be on the screen behind me, I'm going to continue in our series on the parables of Jesus with the parable of the unforgiving servant. So starting in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees begging him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. That's a huge understatement. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you, God, for your word for your wise and good word that is profitable, Lord. And we just pray that it would pierce our hearts tonight and stir in us that we would act out of love and out of gratitude for what you've done for us, God, that we would be forgiving, that we would understand the great forgiveness that you have for us, and that we would be moved to respond, Lord. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and speak through me and that none of your words would fall to the ground, God, but that they would hit their mark. In your name I pray, amen. So, pretty straightforward parable, I think. Um, it's not like the parable Scroggins taught on a few weeks ago, the parable of the wedding feast. That one, I feel like you feel like you're knowing where that one's going, and then at the end that guy shows up in the wrong clothes and he gets thrown out and there's like weeping and gnashing of teeth and you're like, the tone, Jesus, is totally different. What, what happened? This one though, I mean, if, if you missed it, there was a guy, he owes like an unfathomable amount, like Jeff Bezos' bank account amount to someone, and he can't pay it, of course. And all he does is ask like, hey, uh, forgive me, like give me a little bit more time, and that works. The king is like, okay, I actually don't even worry about it, I'll just get rid of the debt. And the first thing he does in response to this is go and find his friend who owes him 50 bucks and try to murder him. So, and then, like, you know, everybody's disgusted with this awful, like, objectively awful behavior, reports it to the king, and he's punished. Seems pretty clear-cut. What I think is interesting 
is the very start of the parable, actually before it even starts, that this is in response to a question from Peter. There's a conversation going on here. Jesus doesn't just say things into a vacuum. He like has intentionality to his words, you know? So he's responding to Peter's question. The Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And what's so funny about this is like, it's not really a question. Like Peter's not waiting on Jesus to answer it. He answers it himself. So what's going on? Like Peter's not wanting an answer from Jesus. He's wanting approval from Jesus. He thinks he's got the right answer already. And seven times is generous for the religious standard of the day. So to be fair to him, the religious standard of the day would have been three, like three strikes and you're out. And that comes from um, the book of Amos. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament where God tells all these different nations, okay, you've sinned against me three times, and the fourth time I'm going to punish you. So this is what the Pharisees would have upheld. And Peter thinks he's being super generous by saying seven, and Jesus answers in all his wisdom, I don't say to you seven, but 70 times seven. And this is actually a reference to somewhere else in the Old Testament. It's the book of Genesis to this guy named Lamech. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Lamech. He's just like in there for a couple of verses. But what we do know is not great. He's a descendant of Cain. So like the first murderer in the history of mankind. Uh, yeah, Lamech. Um, he is the first polygamist. So he's the first guy to look at his wife and go, eh, I think I'll get another one. Um, <laughs> not great. And then the only dialogue we have from Lamech is where he's bragging to his two wives about killing these guys. And then he says, well, if uh, anybody gets mad at me for it and kills me back, then have vengeance on them, 70 times seven. So that's the reference. And Peter would have known exactly who Jesus was talking about. So I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't put a number on forgiveness. He gives it a face. And he gives it the face of the worst guy Peter could think of. He's saying, if, if your brother is Voldemort, I expect you to forgive him. That's how much forgiveness I expect you to have. Yeah. And then he goes into this parable to illustrate just how out of touch with the gospel Peter's question really is. So Peter and a lot of the other disciples are still thinking in the limited terms of the law rather than the unlimited terms of grace that Jesus brings. And this is a broader kingdom concept, which is why Jesus starts the parable with the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. So this isn't just some random like piece of advice to manage our behavior that we pull out every now and then. This is something we need to understand about the way the kingdom of God functions and the heart of the king. So what I think the theme of this parable is, is that grace is the currency of the kingdom. Grace is the currency of the kingdom. And I'll explain it. Hopefully, you guys are adults and you like know the value of currency by now. But in case you don't, I'll illustrate it for you. So my favorite country, aside from America, go USA, is <laughs> Romania. Random, I know. It's like a little country in Europe. It has its own language and currency, kind of self-contained. And it's known for the city of Transylvania. Might have heard of it. It's the home of Dracula's castle. There's supposed to be like werewolves living in the Carpathian Mountains and dragons and all sorts of crazy stuff. 
none of that's there. I've been. But the castle's there. And anyway, it's a tourist city. It's adapted now to make business off of all these tourists. And so you can speak English there and they'll understand you. You can pay for stuff with US dollars. They'll accept that too. But if you go to my favorite place in Romania, it's a little town called Petroasa. And you can walk from one end of Petroasa to another. You don't need a car to get around anywhere. It's real small. Um, if you were to walk around and just be yourself, be your American self, proud American, you would stand out a lot. So if you wanted to assimilate and really live in Petroasa, you would first have to learn the language of Romanian, right? You'd want to perfect the accent so that people could really understand you. Uh, then you'd want to move on to like learn how to cook their foods, what holidays they celebrate, what clothes they wear. And over time, you would begin to look more and more like a Romanian to where you might be able to walk down the street and nobody's gonna like stare at you, weird. But if you do all that and you go to the store in Petrasa and you try to buy something with US dollars, the ruse is up. I mean, you can't live there. Everything you have is worthless. Okay, the kingdom of God functions the same way. So you can learn all the Christian lingo and all the theology stuff you want and sound like you know what you're talking about. You can learn the customs and the culture of the church or of Chi Alpha and look like you belong, but if you don't give grace, you've got the wrong currency. You can't, you don't belong here. Get what I'm saying? I know it's heavy, but stick with me. So this is the message of the gospel, basically, right? The good news of salvation. First, we owe a huge debt that we cannot pay to God. And all we do is ask, like, hey, can I not pay this? I, I don't, I can't. And he gives us an endless deposit into our spiritual bank account, so to speak, of grace. Uh, Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 2 Timothy 1.9 says it a little differently. He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So we've been given this abundant amount of grace, and then we are called to give out of that to others. Make sense? If we don't, there's one of two things going on. Either one, we don't think we need forgiveness from God. And if that's the case, you're in a bad spot. <laughs> but, I mean, that's your business. You probably don't want to be part of the kingdom anyway. Or you want that, you know you need it, and you ask God for it, but you're unwilling for others to have the same. And I would argue that that's worse. That's what the unforgiving servant in the parable is doing. He really wants that forgiveness, but there's one person in his life that he's not willing to have the same. Luke 6, 27 through 28 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. So no matter what others give you, or what circumstances give you, you respond the same. Because all you have in your bank account is grace. Got it? It's like a, a reflex. 
So it's a muscle memory. The more you walk with Jesus, the more you look like Jesus, the more naturally this comes. And this changes things for us. Because I think so often, as Christians, we talk about forgiveness like it's a process, like it's a work in progress kind of thing. Someone will ask us, have you forgiven so-and-so? And we'll say, I'm working on it. You're not working on, what does that mean? You've either forgiven them or you haven't. What you're working on, maybe, is reconciliation or healing. But forgiveness is an automatic response that flows out of humility, joy, and gratitude for what Jesus has already given you that you don't deserve. Okay? Then Jesus clarifies this because he, he gives this parable of the unforgiving servant, right? On the, the tail end of talking about reconciliation, he shares another parable called the parable of the lost sheep where he talks about the heart of God for those that are lost, that have gone astray, and how important reconciliation is to God that he would leave everything to go and get that one. And then when he recovers them, there's this huge celebration. And then he follows that up with this little tidbit on church discipline, which doesn't seem to fit, um, but it's that same concept of reconciliation. When your brother sins against you when he does something wrong and he needs to repent here are the steps you go after him and you you try and talk it out with him bring him back to the church bring him to repentance if he doesn't listen you grab a friend and you go with him and etc and etc but nowhere in those passages is forgiveness mentioned and peter comes out of that with a question about forgiveness so peter is thinking okay if reconciliation doesn't happen, though, if that brother doesn't apologize and repent and come back to the church, then I guess I don't have to forgive him, right? Like, surely, I've gone through all the steps. What he's missed is that forgiveness is assumed in that story. Forgiveness should have already happened before you even approach your brother. Here's why I think that. Further back in Matthew, in chapter 6, the start of Jesus' ministry, He's teaching his disciples how to pray. So 12 chapters later, Peter's already forgotten all this, but it's okay. Um, chapter 6, he gives the Lord's Prayer, which a lot of us probably know by heart. Um, I'm going to put it up there in the, the old King James because it sounds weird otherwise. Um, but we're going to go line by line through it because I want you to catch uh, one of these things is not like the other. Okay? So it starts, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's worship. That's giving God the glory that he deserves, right? Okay, next line. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our first request of the prayer. We're asking God to do something for himself, to further his kingdom, to uphold his will and his promises. Next line. Give us this day our daily bread. It's another request. God, provide for me, meet my needs. The next line, and forgive us our trespasses. It's another request. Forgive us. We're sinners. We need this. Next line, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's the only line in the whole prayer where we're doing something. Something is required of the person who's praying. And before, notice it says, as we forgive, this is ongoing. So before I've even done the worship part, which most of us think is the first step, you know, we've already forgiven our brother. It's assumed. 
And this, this um, giving of grace, this currency of grace concept is demonstrated not just in the teachings of Jesus, but in his life and his character. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, was able to say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That was the lowest and most difficult moment of Jesus' life, and he was able to say those words unironically. And what's interesting is, while he's hanging on the cross, his wounds on his back are still bleeding, and he still has the nails in his hands. So his physical wounds are not healed at this point, like not even close. He's about to die. And then three days later, when he raises, rises, he still has those scars, those reminders of the hurt. He just got done crying and praying alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, and right before he utters these words, he yells out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His emotional hurts are still there too. And he's not reconciled to Peter. His relationship with Peter is fractured at this point. Peter has betrayed him. He's not even there. He's not going to be reconciled to Judas. We know that. But he was still able to forgive. Sadly, when we equate reconciliation and hurt, healing of hurts with forgiveness, we'll end up saying something like, convict them, Father. They know what they did to me. Instead of Jesus' words, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Before we wrap up, I want to tell you a quick story about my brother, so how many of you guys are youngest siblings in your family? Whoa, <laughs> there's a lot. Also, that was like really bold. <laughs> I feel like youngest siblings most of the time, like they know they're about to get roasted and so they're like, that's me. <laughs> but I mean, you guys are like little crybabies, the tattletales, right? <laughs> okay, sorry. I am not the youngest sibling in my family, but this is a good youngest sibling story. So you're welcome. This one goes out to you little guys. <laughs> Um, my youngest brother, Joseph, is six years younger than me, uh, and four and a half years younger than my brother, David. So for you non-math whizzes out there, that makes David and I a year and a half apart, which means that I don't remember life before David. Uh, we did everything together. We were the best of friends, attached at the hip, partners in crime. And then Joseph came along and ruined it. And I promise this is a good youngest sibling story, I swear. Um, but yeah, Joseph, like, he wanted to be a part of everything that we did, but he wasn't, like, old enough to do it yet. Like, he wasn't cool, he wasn't funny, he was just kind of there. But he really wanted to be a part. Um, so we, brilliant little 11-year-old minds, whatever that we were, uh, put Joseph through the most rigorous and traumatic hazing that, like, a person can go through. So... Uh, one time we, we made this thing called scary soup, which sounds, yeah. Um, it was like a conglomeration of all the liquid and semi-liquid ingredients in our kitchen, like mustard, soy sauce, vinegar, chocolate, syrup, you name it. And Joseph wasn't allowed to stir or like pick any ingredients. He was only allowed to participate if he was the taste tester. Yeah, he totally did eat it. He totally did. Um, and then another time we like put hot sauce on his mouth while he was sleeping and then he woke up and his tongue was so numb that he thought it had fallen out <laughs> so he cried for like hours um, 
Yeah, I know. I feel bad about it now. But anyway, I think my mom's watching the live stream, so mom, that's why Joseph is such a picky eater, because his taste buds have been hurt before. Um, and then my favorite prank, I think it's the simplest but most elegant that we would do, is we would wait until my mom had had a really bad day at work, and we'd know, because she would, like, slam the door, <sighs> as if, like, to announce her presence or remind herself to breathe, I don't know. Um, but no, like now is not the time to ask what's for dinner. That is the, the no, no question. So we would send Joseph and we'd say, hey, we want McDonald's. Go ask mom if we can have McDonald's. And then we'd stand up there because we, we were in one of those pretentious two-story houses that had a bridge on the second floor. And so we'd stand up on the bridge and like peer through the little gaps in the bars and watch as he like went downstairs thinking he was going to get McDonald's. <laughs> and then we'd wait and listen for his little voice to go, hey, mommy, can we have? And we'd run because as much as we wanted him to suffer, we didn't want to be there to see it. So we'd be in David's room like playing Game Boy or something and we'd hear Joseph's soul leave his body. And then <laughs> he'd come upstairs like 10 minutes later, all slow and sad, and he'd be like, mom said no <laughs> and we would go oh man sorry buddy maybe next time as if it had been his idea so we like inceptioned our little brother before we knew what inception was but my point is that joseph anywhere along the way could have been like you know i live here rent free whether you like me or not like i don't have to put up with this this is unfair treatment. He must have known that it was. But Joseph, I think, would have endured anything from us for the chance to be in relationship with us. That's how much he loved us. And Jesus, likewise, was willing to endure the mockery of his people, the betrayal of his friends, lashes on his back, a crown of thorns on his head, and then ultimately the cross for us to have the chance to be in relationship with him. So, as I get ready to close, I'll invite the band back up. But I want to ask, what is holding us back from wanting that for other people? Because when you forgive, you're not agreeing, I want to make this clear, you're not agreeing with what other people have done to you. You're not approving of sin. You're not approving of hurtful actions or words. But what you are doing is acknowledging that there is no hurt so big that it can come between you and the love of Jesus. And there's no bitterness that you are going to allow to come between another person and the love of Jesus. Because that's what you're doing when you hold on to that, that bitterness and that unforgiveness. You're hurting yourself, first of all, and you're putting a barrier between that person and Jesus with your words, with your actions, and with your prayers for them to just get that condemnation because they know what they've done to you. I think that when we're afraid to forgive, we haven't fully given up our rights to be right, or for others to know what's happened to us and to sympathize. And we haven't given up our right to earthly justice. 
But do we trust God to be that for us? To be our comforter? To avenge us and uphold justice for us? Because if we don't, then we're going to try and do it ourselves. But if we do, it becomes a lot easier to lay that down. And to know that even if my friend doesn't know how much they've hurt me, and even if my friends don't know how much that other friend hurt me, that God knows, and that God cares, and he will uphold justice on our behalf, and he will be our comforter, nearer than a brother. So tonight, do you realize how much you've been forgiven? I want to start there. Because if you don't, then maybe you haven't been. Maybe you haven't received that grace that's free, that's abundant. Jesus did that for you, for the chance of being in relationship with you. So do you realize how much you have been forgiven of? And you making your forgiveness contingent on anything? Are you waiting until that person apologizes to forgive them? Are you waiting until the circumstance is right or until you're not hurt anymore to forgive them? Because if you are, you're going to be waiting for a really, really long time. Some people move away or die before we get a chance to be reconciled to them. And that's not going to be fixed on this side of eternity. But you can still forgive. You can still forgive. My brother did it at five years old. So, for the altar time tonight, um, every forgiveness sermon that I've sat through, they've had some sort of weird altar call where you like write people's names down on a page that you need to forgive and then you like tear it up or burn it or something. And it's supposed to be symbolic. But then I end up there the next year with the same names on the same paper doing the same thing. So instead, I want us to respond not just in our hearts, but physically tonight and just have some intimate time with Jesus to reflect on those questions to realize how much you've been forgiven. Are you making your forgiveness contingent on anything? Have we given up our rights to sympathy, earthly justice, to be right? And so... This space is open. This is what we call the altar, this, these stairs at the front of the stage. But we're also, we have tons of chairs around the room that are empty, so we can do this socially distanced. We can. But I think um, if the posture of your heart is humbled, then the posture of your body should be that way too. It helps. It helps if your heart is kneeling for you to physically kneel. Does that make sense? It helps to not just say it, but to do it, because feelings follow actions. It's like working out, and you don't feel like working out, but then you go to the gym and you feel really great afterwards, even if you really didn't want to do it. Sometimes physically moving out of our seat to another place, or just turning in our seats and kneeling and making our seat an altar, can do that in our heart. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some quiet time with Jesus. And if you need to forgive something big, that's okay. You can do it. 
You don't have to be reconciled yet. You don't have to be over the hurt yet. You can forgive. And if it's just an attitude thing of like every time you're annoyed with somebody, you hold that grudge or you don't respond with grace automatically, give that to Jesus too. That's forgiveness too. I want to pray for us now that God will move. Jesus, thank you for everything that you've done for us. Thank you for canceling our debt, for giving us the opportunity to be in relationship with you again, the way you intended it to be. God, I ask that you would move in hearts tonight, that you would loosen some things, break down some walls. We would be able to be honest about where we need to forgive, what we need to be forgiven of, and that we would confess that to you, that we would trust you with it. And I pray that you would be a comforter to us tonight, those of us that have seen some dark, hurtful things, that your love would be greater, that no hurt would come between us and your love. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength tonight to forgive, to lay things down, and to give you the right as our king, as our father, as our shepherd, to uphold justice on our behalf. Because our salvation is secure. We don't have to worry about that. And so I just pray, God, that you would be here with us, that you would help us to be brave, to get out of our seats if we need to, whatever it takes, that we would not leave here tonight with bitterness or hurt in between us and you. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us. In your name.